0: From the Kennan Institute, I am Isabella Tabarovsky, and you are listening to The Russia File. Today, we're continuing our conversation about the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. On the previous episode, we talked about what this moment looks like in Ukraine. Today we'll be talking about Russia. My guest today is Max Trudalubov, an independent Russian journalist, senior associate at the Kennan Institute, and editor-in-chief of Kennan's Russia File blog. Max, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: It's hard to believe it's been two years. Where were you two years ago as the war started? Do you remember that time?
1: I do. I was in Vilnius, where I lived most of the time. But I was in Moscow in February. I left Moscow in early February. I went there for some meetings. And the interesting or eerie part of it was that I had this understanding, coming mainly from experts and from my colleagues, including from colleagues at the Canon Institute, like Mike Kaufman, who explained it to me in very plain terms, that this thing didn't look like anything else. It was just an imminent invasion. Still, I mean, trusting these people, I would say, yeah, that's probably true. But my gut feeling would just say, no, it was so catastrophic. It would be mad to do that. So I was kind of ambiguous in my head about it, although I remember writing a piece for the Canada Institute saying that I think it was something like the war that is both impossible and imminent. And I still think that was it. So that was a catastrophic mistake or miscalculation the way people in Moscow put it, but yes.
0: Well, and I remember that time really well, too, even as the State Department or the U.S. government was putting out the intelligence saying that an invasion is coming. I think it was so hard to believe. So many of us remember texting with a friend who is also a Russia analyst and we were like, this is just crazy. We just couldn't believe it would happen. And then, of course, it did happen. But I think just as you said, it was so catastrophic Then, when it did happen, then I don't think any of us expected that it would last this long. I mean, did you even expect that we would be having this conversation two years later? It feels so hard to believe that we are at this point.
1: No, at that time, no. I thought it would be over in months, to be honest, mostly because, again, it was so crazy and so many people from every possible quarter would say, this needs to stop, this needs to stop. And obviously, there were negotiations, but then they broke up, and there is still an argument on why. But there was a real chance in March, April 22, then, that the war could stop, but it didn't.
0: Well, that's right. And also, I think in those first weeks or months, I remember so many people expected that everything would also just collapse because it seemed like such a massive overreach on Russia's part. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But I want to stay with that moment a little bit for now, right around the invasion of following the invasion. And we already discussed what was happening in Ukraine. But in Russia, it was accompanied by, of course, a massive ramping up of repressions. A lot of the people that both of us knew, but for you, these are really close friends, all of a sudden had to flee en masse independent journalists, activists, all kinds of people all of a sudden were having to leave the country on a spur of the moment overnight, leaving everything behind. What was that like for you to watch that?
1: Well, that was surreal. And that was different from my own path, as it were. When I was leaving, well, first, I did not really think about it as permanent move, irreversible. I enjoyed coming back to Moscow and meeting all of my friends, most of the friends, I don't know, 80% roughly stayed. And I kind of moved about. And when I was leaving, it was roughly 2014, 15, that time. And when I was leaving, I felt so bad about my countrymen, about other Russians. During the Crimea episode, during the annexation, at one point, and I was in Moscow at the time, I realized that 9 out of 10 people walking with me, I was walking along a street in Moscow, in central Moscow, 9 out of 10 people think that this annexation is a good thing to do. And in a way, I wanted to lead because of that, not because of Putin, not because of the government. I was still an active journalist, editor at the time, publishing expert articles, writing editorials, writing my own stuff. But I couldn't believe my ears that this move out of the blue, just to go and grab a piece of land, it somehow turned popular and I couldn't believe it. I wanted to dissociate myself, to distance myself from this place in a way, obviously remaining Russian part of that culture. I never questioned that, but I couldn't believe that my people, Russian society turned out to be a lot different from what I kind of implied. That was the thing. And when 22 happened in February 22, I just saw people leave. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, why were you thinking? It was so obvious that things were going this way. Again, I couldn't believe it would happen like this way. The full-scale invasion, the terrible war. But it was pretty clear the Kremlin was hell-bent on doing some sort of disruption, some sort of war. They've been waging war for years and years. So it was a lot of empathy for me, and I realized that for me, everything institutionally, Russian media collapsed at the time, institutionally. Before that, I felt I could go back and forth. Media existed, education, a lot of institutions that I used to be part of either media or educational, they existed. They're still in full swing. Everything was working. There were cases, obviously, people being arrested, but in general, things were working, and I enjoyed that, and I thought that would continue. But in February, March 22, it all collapsed with the help of the Kremlin, obviously. So basically, they declared media and most of education, universities, colleges, effectively illegal in Russia. So people had to leave if they wanted to stay, continue in their professions.
0: Yeah, and I remember also those first weeks or couple of months. I think it was within weeks that all of a sudden it, it became clear that Echo of Moscow may be off air, going off air. And that was just such institutions that have survived for so long that were built so painstakingly after the USSR collapsed, that all of a sudden, all of that was really disappearing. It was just really hard to watch. And then, of course, all of this community, essentially all of Russian independent media journalists, found themselves abroad, and I remember seeing a large group of them at a conference in May, so just a couple of months after it all happened, and people just being completely shell-shocked and realizing that, of course, there were sanctions and so there were no payment systems that they could engage to get paid or take their money out and to legalize themselves in their new countries. Just totally shell-shocked, but also at the same time thinking that this is probably temporary and will end very quickly and being determined to continue in their profession. And now two years later, again, I've watched this community. You are part of it and I've been watching it for these two years. I think there is a dawning realization that they are now abroad. Most of them I think have now found a way to legalize themselves and start new media projects and they are determined to continue informing the Russian public in Russia and to continue reporting out of Russia. But there's also a realization that this is probably for a long time, that they're not going back anytime soon. Do you feel like there has been a shift like this over the last two years?
1: Yeah. It's not just media. A lot of people who left in 22, mostly there was this huge wave in March, 2022. They were leaving for a brief moment, believing that things will get back to normal, but not just media activists, people in politics, social scientists, engineers, IT people, that wave combined people from the kinds of professions that were directly threatened by Russia's political situation and people whose professions and backgrounds were kind of easier convertible, easier turned into possibilities outside of Russia, in the West, elsewhere. So. All those people are quite capable people. And by some accounts, there are different estimates, but it's between 500,000 and about a million people who left Russia for the past two years. So this is a new historic wave of Russian immigration. Obviously this country, Russia had been through many, maybe it's the fifth, depending on how you count them. This is also kind of irony of Russia's history. We tend to do that.
0: Right. Exactly. And I think at that point, everybody was thinking about the immigration right after the forced flight following the revolution. A lot of people had that parallel in their minds. It's interesting. I think what makes this immigration different, you've touched on it a little bit, is that there are, of course, technologies that in a way, certainly for people like journalists that allow them to continue practicing their profession and to be heard And to be expressing their opinions, so many people have started new projects. But at the same time, we know that we just recently published an article on the Russia File about it. We know that the Kremlin, of course, also uses new technologies to suppress these new projects. First of all, independent media websites are blocked, and then there are technologies that allow them to just simply scan through every piece of content, whether not just text, but also video and audio, to find seditious content and block it, and then to go after the authors of this and producers of this content. So to what extent do you feel independent Russian media that's now abroad is able to get through to the Russian audiences, because my understanding is that there are still, I believe there are some 20 million, that's the estimate, that there are still some 20 million Russians who consume independent Russian media from abroad. To what extent is the community able to get through to them with alternative information that contradicts the propaganda and offers a different perspective from the Kremlin's propaganda? And to what extent, because I know that a lot of journalists were worrying about becoming detached from Russian realities, becoming irrelevant to the Russian audiences. Do you think they're still able and you as well, to the extent that you also write in Russian, are you all able to reach the Russian audiences inside Russia? And at the same time, do you feel that you're able to report accurate information from Russia for the Western audiences?
1: I do think that I'm still there in a way, and I constantly develop ways of keeping in contact. Well, first and foremost, I talk to people. I talk to all kinds of people, and not just my friends. I talk to people in high places, in middle places, all kinds of places, whenever I can. So to a certain extent, to a degree that it's possible, I'm trying to be up to date. As for reaching to Russian society and though people remain in Russia, and again, let's not forget, the majority of Russians remain in Russia and will always remain in Russia. People who can leave, by definition, are a minority. And it will always be like this. There are still cases that, I don't know, GDR East Germany went like, up to a third of population left. But that was a very specific situation in history where you had a country divided. And for a certain period, people could simply cross the border and they chose to leave. But these are rare. In this case, the kind of people who left, they could leave in the first place or threatened directly or indirectly. So, reaching out to our fellow Russians is actually possible. There's no iron curtain. There are curtains, obviously, there are all kinds of barriers, but reaching out is possible. Millions of people can still use YouTube. They use Telegram messaging app. But the thing is, it's not about technology, mostly. It's about the kind of atmosphere that is created in Russia and the kind of atmosphere that's created outside of Russia. People who live outside, They live in a different media universe, an institutional universe. It's not just the freedom of speech. Obviously, yes, we do enjoy that. But we speak from the point of recognizing that this war is criminal. And we always remember about Ukraine, the fate of Ukraine, Ukrainians. Whereas people in Russia, it's not that they don't recognize this reality. They do, obviously. But they don't want to be lectured about their moral choices. So people who the left, they enjoy moral high ground that they've earned by the act of leaving the country, the aggressor country. People who remain don't want to be lectured about that. They say we are parents, we are sons and daughters, we have our professions, we have our responsibilities. And if you're a train driver or a meteorologist, or you're running a company that's providing some utilities or the internet, and then there are lots of fields where it's neutral. It's completely outside of any connection to politics. Or war. But then obviously it crosses into that. If you're running an internet company, let's say Yandex, That is, on the one hand, is responsible for providing internet infrastructure and people with all kinds of services, like order food. But on the other hand, they're responsible for propaganda as well, because they've been, this particular company, it's Russia's answer to Google. Essentially, it's a search engine originally, but then the company that built this entire ecosystem of services around it. And obviously, it has Yandex News, just like Google has Google News. And obviously, Yandex News is curated by now by the government. So at some point, you cross into politics, you cross into propaganda. And all those moral choices, they start to blink. There is the possible red line that you're crossing. And when I'm talking to people, it's a subject. It's always there. People think, okay, I can go up to this point. Let's say I'm an architect. I will build in Yekaterinburg or Novosibirsk. But then if there's something happens and somebody comes up and says, why don't you produce a design for Donetsk or Mariupol? This is a no, this is no go. So this is a real conversation with somebody who is running a school of architecture in Moscow. So people are constantly in this debate, including with their own consciousness because people have to, and again, the majority will always remain in Russia. They live with this. They must live with this, they will have to live with this. So, this is complex, it's not straightforward.
0: And this brings to my mind something that you and I have discussed before, something we've written about before, I think, on our blog. You've written about it actually, and others have written. It's probably a futile question, and I know that a lot of people, it has been part of the very acrimonious discussions over the last two years about why don't people leave? Why are they staying? Why have they not left? And it's a very complex question, and it doesn't have to do, not necessarily, not always at all, and certainly not with the people you were talking about with support or not support for the war. And one of the factors here is that actually I think the West has failed to create the best possible conditions for a real brain drain from Russia. We failed to make it attractive for educated Russians to leave and come in and become productive citizens here. I know this about scientists, for example, I've spoken to some science journalists who talk about how there were scientists who actually had invitations from American universities or British universities, but couldn't get visas, so they had to turn around, or maybe they came and couldn't find good enough positions. So some of them went back to Russia. And some of them were immediately bought over by China or by Middle Eastern dictatorships, essentially to the point where you start to think, well, this is almost a question of national security for the United States, because if a Russian nuclear scientist or a biochemist goes to Iran or to China instead of the United States, well, that couldn't be good for us. So what do you think about this, that the West really should have done more to bring educated Russians or make it possible for educated Russians to leave the country?
1: Absolutely. And that was really weird to watch, to be honest, because this discourse, I think it emerged in Europe, mostly in Central Europe, immediately after the invasion, that crossing into the West is some kind of privilege for Russians. So we need to stop that because Russians are enjoying these privileges. As if the West, and in this case, Europe, is some kind of entertainment, an amusement park, which you are denying bad, bad Russians to enter. But the thing is that the people who can leave, don't get me wrong, but for the past 30 years, people who could actually leave Russia, they are the most able, educated professionals or people with money. And people
0: with choices.
1: That's right. People who could afford it. People who were competitive. People who could withstand the competition with their peers outside of Russia, and these are uh, the best of the best. And that's, has always been like this. And why not encourage that, particularly during the war? Because again, Russia still has a strong engineering schools and IT schools and, and general sciences, math, physics, and many of these people, they were thinking, they were thinking, well, before the war, but immediately after the invasion, a lot of those people were ready to pack and go but they were discouraged within a few months, let's say during 2022. Many of them were discouraged. Judging the experience of their peers, their friends who left, and then bumped into all kinds of careers, including these visa barriers, they just decided not to. And we're talking about, again, IT people, engineers, people with oil and gas backgrounds, highly qualified managers. Most of them stayed. And by now it would be very, very hard and very difficult to try and lure them. The thing is that, again, by now they're sort of tainted. We also have to understand that. But many of the engineers had to stay because of these issues. They had to stay. And there are not many alternatives in Russia to working directly or indirectly for Russia's war economy. They may not be physically producing some kind of designs that are used for rockets, but indirectly they could be part of it. So that, I think, was a huge mistake. It was strange, I think, existential kind of values-based mistake, because people from the West were treating their own countries, their own Western ecosystem, the institutional West, let's put it like this, as some sort of privilege, thinking about the migrants, we're afraid of migrants, the people coming from all over the place, they want to enjoy our lifestyles, they're taking our jobs, this sort of thinking, which is obviously the premise the Western politics, we all know, The constant battleground, this entire argument. But in this particular case, we were always talking about highly educated, highly capable people with skills and incredible adaptability. Russians of this sort are incredibly adaptable. Most Russians don't form diasporas, as we know. We all tend to infiltrate and just live.
0: Integrate. Integrate. Integrate and become part of the Environment.
1: Yeah, become part of the society of the new home. And this is real, this is possible. I think this chance has been lost by now, mostly.
0: I agree with you. And I think with regards to Russians, I don't even know if the discussion was about the increasing migration. I think it was really just a lack of thinking compared to the Cold War, when there was a clear understanding that you want to encourage Russians who can leave Soviet citizens, you want to encourage them to leave. That was lost. I think it's partly our technocratic elites who think that, well, we just solve everything technocratically. We impose the sanctions. They will do their work. It's just this weird discounting of the human factor. And I think that the human factor probably plays a role in what I do want us to now come back to, this fact that the Russian economy actually has not collapsed as many expected. I do remember, again, in those first months, actually interviewing somebody really Prominent and respected, and the fact that he got this prognosis wrong doesn't make him less so. But he was very sure, and he wanted me to put it in the article that I was writing that within several months, the regime will collapse. It will collapse economically, it will collapse militarily, it will collapse morally. So by the fall of 2022, it was all going to be over. But the Russian economy didn't collapse. So, what are you seeing in this regard, and what has happened?
1: Well, actually, what we discussed before is a huge factor that most of the highly qualified managers of various kinds, including civil servants, remained. I mean, by now we have a new generation, an entire generation of highly capable professionals, including in government. But the general story is like the big picture is like this. 2022, beginning, Russia was on an amazing track. It was growing fast, recovering from the COVID pandemic, and it was 35 gdp in the first quarter 22 and then the invasion and it was terrible all of those officials everyone stayed quasi-state companies the people were running them they were in shock complete and utter shock and everything was about to collapse but central bank government finance ministry this entire group of civil servants rather than the military rather than security specialists, they essentially saved Putin and saved the country. Central Bank acted swiftly and arguably very smartly. Essentially, they froze the ruble, the economy, they imposed some kind of, they stopped capital transfer, they banned non-resident companies from leaving Russia, leaving Russian market, et cetera, et cetera. And this allowed for some space, it allowed for some time, and that prevented the collapse, essentially. And then, Of course, oil revenue, gas, but mostly oil, for the entire 2022, the first year of Russia's war against Ukraine, Russia was exporting record amounts of oil everywhere, throughout everywhere. Because the West, and particularly countries in the West in general, they were afraid that a sudden embargo will lead to some sort of market collapse that will hurt the West rather than Russia. So that was the thinking. But the result was this, that Russia got record amounts of cash in 22. And that essentially helped it wither the year 2023, kind of in very general terms. But by the year 2023, the economy was gradually being restructured for war into a a kind of half war economy. It's not really a war economy even now, but it's much more a war economy than it used to be, obviously. And now and the year 23 actually was a growth year, 3% GDP plus in 23. In 22, it was a recession about more than 2% minus, but 23 was a growth year. 23 enjoyed the fruits of the oil trade of the 22, plus this enormous, enormous growth in production, in manufacturing, which is mostly war manufacturing. And in some months, in 23, we had growth like, I don't know, 40% a month in industrial production. By now it's slowing. Again, don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm praising this, but the year 23 was like crazy, basically, because of this sudden, very, fast restructuring for war. So that allowed the Russian economy to stay afloat, to be resilient. Again, financial reserves drained, labor drained, because a lot of men in employable age leaving the country.
0: Or fighting, right? Or, or being fighting, yeah, war. yeah,
1: and again, yeah. all those things that the Russian economy is now producing, a lot of it are non-productive, it's a non-productive economy. But at this point, it's running, and funds are being... Channel to places where there is, you know, military production of all kinds. So we would say, I don't know, places like Tula or Izhevsk, mid-sized cities, depressed for decades. They are now enjoying a renaissance of sorts. So we also have to realize that as a fact. Now it's unclear whether this can continue for a long time. And uh, Russia has significant inflation. For example, the central bank is constantly uh, keeping its the key rate at very high. And it's in double digits and it probably will grow. So it keeps freezing the economy. So this is one side of the picture. The other side is that economic and financial management is capable to this day. It's very important to understand that it's not the military, it's not the security specialists who saved Putin. It's civil servants. It's all those civilians who don't speak up, who just do their quiet work. It's just, it probably would sound strange, but look at people like starting from the prime minister, somebody named Mishustin, who even knows this name, but he's Russia's prime minister. He said almost nothing about the war for the past two years, like some muted things. Very rarely he appears in any gathering that has anything to do with the war. Most of his other government ministers are silent as well. Most of the people who are running huge current-owned or quasi-state companies like Aeroflot or Gazprom, they don't say much. They just run things, just do things. And they've been incredibly active in sanctions, circumventional various kinds of evasion of op- various kinds. They've been incredibly creative. Most of these companies, they're operating at high capacity and doing well. So we have to realize that for a combination of reasons basically russia still enjoyed and still enjoys a large inflow of revenue from its oil trade and also which i think to my judgment is even more important russia enjoys a large pool of highly educated and capable managers who are actually running the country it's not putin and the crazy types who are waging the war the people like nikolai Patrushev who is believed to be sort of the godfather of this war, or some kind of guy like Yuri who who is also believed to be one of the people who inspired Putin into making this fateful decision. But it's not them. They're not running the country. They're just the face. They're just sitting on top of it. But there are actually real people who are, for reasons that, remain to be explored, by the way, are working like hell. They've been mobilized. They mobilized themselves, probably, and they're working really well. And it still remains to be understood. What is this? Is this just fear? Or some kind of patriotism? Or something in between? But that's what it is.
0: Well, and what's interesting, I think You said to me before that you talked to a wide variety of people across the spectrum and you said that everyone essentially agrees that the war was a terrible mistake, but they fear a defeat.
1: Yeah. I'm yet to talk to a person, I mean, people in Russia, in Russia, who are running things. Let's say, let's put it like the elites. I'm yet to talk to a person who would say, oh, that was cool. That's exactly what we needed. Russia needed the war. Not a single one. They vary in terms of to say, was it like a mistake or a crime or miscalculation? Some even said it was actually a crime. That was terrible. But after that, once they recognized this, they went through all kinds of all the stages of grief, but they remained there. Most of them, 99%. I know a few people and talked to them who left. I mean, senior officials or top managers. This is actually a single group. They're all watched by the FSB, Russia's security agency. So it's very hard to leave. But some did, but they're silent. There are like two or three people who said something of those who left. But the majority, the bulk, 99%, they remained. And they started working. And I think they were kind of inspired by some sort of, for being contrarians to all those who were outside of Russia and were calling for a collapse and these people again they're highly educated many of them with western degrees by the way for example people who are running the central bank there are many like people with phd from mit and they just said why i mean why would i collapse the ruble who would benefit from it okay it's complex it's not an easy thing right you say okay i go outside And protest with a slogan, I get arrested, my relatives, probably the entire family will have to suffer the consequences one way or another. The institution collapses, some idiot security colonel is installed, or some kind of general is installed in my place, or some idiot. I heard that, I was told this. And what? The rubble collapses, I am in jail, my relatives are in fear, I cannot leave. I mean, who benefits from this, right? So that's the kind of logic. And it's hard to argue. I mean, we all want for this to end, and we all want Ukraine to get back to peace on Ukraine's terms, obviously. But for people who remain back, then the very different moral logic, they think in different terms. And this logic that we accept, that is acceptable to us, the kind of moral high ground that we enjoy, saying that the war is wrong, that this is evil, and this is an aggression, and Putin is political opportunist of the worst kind. It's not that they don't share it, they may just keep silent about it, but they have this other moral logic within their heads that says, we want to keep the institutions running, we want to keep the trains running, we want to keep hospitals Functioning, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The schools, the universities, even without the best professors who left, so there are still institutions to run. This is where we are.
0: What about the upcoming elections? On the one hand, there is sort of a, like ah, you know, elections where Putin is going to be reelected anyway. Why even pay attention? But on the other hand, some interesting dynamics have emerged. What is there for us to consider in the upcoming elections?
1: Well, my thinking still is that these are no elections. And Mm -hmm. thankfully, I'm not a politician. So in my conversations with my friends who are, I enjoy not being a politician because they have to be optimistic by definition. It's like running a business startup. You cannot be pessimistic. You have to be optimistic. So they have to be optimistic and they have to say that, okay, okay, there is an opening. There is a window. We can do this. We can do that. There is this promising candidate, the person nobody expected to be one, one uh, Boris Nadezhdin, who's kind of liberal, but with the history. He was a friend of Boris Nemtsov, the murdered politician. And he was invited for TV shows, so everybody thought that he was the government-approved liberal. But he put up a good show, amazingly, and he started by the Russian law. You have to collect signatures for being registered as a candidate. So he collected and lots of people came and there were lines and lines of people. And now the drama is they probably won't register. I don't believe they will. But the interesting part is that yes, lots of people wanted to support him. But this so-called election, which is not an election, is an orchestrated affair. It's something that I think will be presented as a kind of trap for the opposition. Because the one tactic the opposition has been using for years and years. They've been trying to consolidate their effort and try and make sure that people who listen to them vote somebody else, not Putin, ideally for some one person. So this is a typical tactical voting, basically. It's something that Alexei Navalny, the oppositionist, calls smart voting. Well, it's tactical voting, right? The Kremlin has a team of very capable campaign managers. And basically what they do, I think, is that will make sure that all of the, let's say, four or five candidates on the ballot will be pro-war. But then Putin will start saying things about the peace. We want the peace. We want to stop the war. We are the peaceful ones. And, you know, Putin keeps doing that. He says that it's not we who wage this war. We are being attacked. And he keeps saying and saying that. It's odd nausea. I mean, it may sound crazy at first, but as we know from history, a lie repeated a thousand times, kind of sticks, right? And basically, he keeps saying that, and I'm just sure that once this campaign starts in earnest, he will just say that I'm a pro-peace candidate. Look at all of these guys, you know, the communist, this idiot, and also some other idiot. They're all pro-war, which will mean that the good people of the opposition who all gather to try and not unseat them, unable to unseat Putin, but at least... To call for some kind of action, some kind of tactical voting. Vote for somebody else. And this somebody else will be a pro-war candidate and Putin will be a pro-peace candidate. That's the kind of thing that these people do in the Kremlin. They're, They're smart, but they're evil at the same time. So, well, you have it.
0: Yeah. Max, I could continue this conversation for hours and I realized we haven't even touched on so many crucial issues I was hoping we would touch on, such as mobilization and the opinion polls in Russia. So we'll just have to come back and we'll keep writing on the Russia file. Max, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This concludes our conversation reflecting on the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I am Isabella Tabarovsky. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of The Russia File.